Have you ever wondered how a school district could best set up and structure their equity office and equity work to be most substantive? Or have you ever wondered what is the role of community in holding equity offices and equity work in a district accountable? If you've answered yes to either of these questions, then you are in the right place. Hi, I'm Dr. Terrence L. Green. I'm a tenure professor, and I've helped to prepare hundreds of racially just and anti-racist school leaders, and I want to help you. That's why I created this podcast to provide you and your team with real-world insights and practices that work so that you can collectively build racially just schools. Today's episode is the second part of the conversation that I had with Dr. Dakota J. Irby and Dr. Ann Ishimaru on research that we've been doing for the past several years on K-12 equity district leadership with a particular focus on equity offices and equity officers. Dr. Ann Ishimaru is a professor at the University of Washington and the author of the best-selling book, Just Schools, Building Equitable collaborations with families and communities. Dr. Dakota J. Irby is an associate professor of educational policy studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago and is the author of the best-selling book, Stuck Improving Racial Equity in School Leadership. During this conversation, we talk about the importance of how superintendents and districts can start to set up and structure this role in this office so that this work can be most sustainable and most impactful. We also spend some time talking about um the importance of the community keeping the equity work at a district accountable. We also just share what we've kind of learned um, over the last several years of, of doing this work and this research, um, what we might offer to folks in these roles. Before we get into today's episode, I want to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by www.raciallyjustschools.com. And when you join our community today, I will send you a free video on how to make your racial justice work better. I'm excited about you joining the community, and I look forward to meeting you. But first, I have a special announcer that's going to get us started. Welcome to the Racial Jessica's podcast with your host, Dr. Terrence Elgrade. He's my daddy, and he's the best. Let's go. Welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast. My name is Terrence L. Green and I am your host. Yo, I am super excited that you are back for this episode. Now, on today's episode, this is going to be part two of my conversation with Dr. Dakota J. Irby and Dr. Ann Ishimaru. As we're continuing to talk about the work that we've been doing around equity officers and equity offices and K-12 equity leadership. Now, if you have not listened to episode 31, I would ask that you a pause or at your leisure just to go back and listen to that episode, because that is going to help you have a more comprehensive understanding of what we're talking about. Because on this episode, we're going to just jump right on in into our conversation. We're going to pick the conversation up as we're talking about, you know, how these equity work can become co-opted, but the importance of community holding the districts accountable for this work to be done in some substantive and profound and powerful ways. So without any further ado, we're going to jump right back into this conversation and super excited for you. Um, stay to the end because I'm going to give you some resources that we have that we can share with you about um, the work that we've been doing with equity officers and equity districts and around equity. So if you're interested in it, we'll share some of the resources that we have available for you. So let's get into it. 
equity directors and this position in these offices, like, you know, do they get co-opted, you know, as they, you know, get closer to the traditional kind of conventional sources of power that operate within districts? And it's a good question. I think this goes back to uh, Dr. Ishimaru's point about the importance of community, because even if these positions and offices um, exist, it's still important for communities, for people to still hold anybody who's in a position of leadership in a district accountable to advance an agenda that's going to benefit their children and their communities. That just boils down. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, here in Chicago, we just elected probably the most progressive mayor in the country at this point. Well, you know, the people got to keep him progressive because he in there now. That's good. And so there's these very real kinds of um, dilemmas that even someone uh, like, uh, you know, um, our mayor elect could easily succumb to going back to the old playbook, which is what our previous mayor did. She ran on a reform agenda and then eventually reverted back to the to the old school playbook. And so the same thing happens and mm. same thing has the potential to happen in school settings. Right. Mm. Um, I'm thinking, for example, about. Um, a district who reached out to me recently because they've been having a lot of fights happening with uh, their, their black girls. And I'm listening to the rhetoric around rhetoric around what's happening and it's reverting to, you know, zero tolerance Mm. essentially. Right. And this is a district that has, you know, what I would consider a pretty progressive uh, superintendent. And so the question becomes, how do community members continue to hold people accountable to not, fall back into what's comfortable and what's familiar in terms of trying to address a lot of the really, you know, substantial problems that exist within um, the schools and within a lot of school districts. I would say all school districts, there's substantial problems, especially along lines of uh, race and and, and class and and those sorts of things. The period I will put on this comment is that even when these positions and these offices are created, it's still up to community members to hold the people who are in them accountable um, for creating, you know, working to create the kind of conditions that's going to benefit. So I also want to kind of, um, expand, you know, sort of like our work started with equity directors. You alluded to this briefly, uh, earlier Terrence, but just this notion of what does it mean to, um, to enact leadership across a system? Um, and how do we think, you know, there's, I think some of the assumptions that, undergirded our earlier work was that equity work at a, a at a systems level um, sort of emanates out from a kind of single point like the equity director or the equity uh, office, that kind of thing. And I think that's one of the things that's been really interesting uh, in our current study to look at is, is I think we have one of our districts uh, doesn't actually have an equity director, um, not in the kinds of ways that we've been talking about. And they have, there are, but it's also not to say that there's not equity work happening. It's happening from different point and in different points um, of the district. So there's, there's things happening um, with some of the folks in the community and related to some uh, committees of the, the school board. There's some things happening at some of the school, uh, some school level kinds of things. Um uh, and then there's things happening in particular departments. Um, and so it's, I think, a really fascinating question to think about. You know, this is like as we enter the the near the end of our current study is really thinking about how, do, how does this uh, equity leadership change and grow and proliferate or spread um, and sort of 
troubling this idea that it it's kind of emanating from a single point um, and that we might actually be seeing it coming from multiple points. And some of the, you know, I think that there's advantages in some ways that it's kind of growing out of particular kinds of contexts. And on the other hand, uh, one of the things that we're seeing in, uh, you know, again, we haven't written about this yet, but uh, just sort of a kind of an emerging uh, finding, I think, is just that th that those efforts are not necessarily connected to each other. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think as uh, educators in all parts of a system um, and, uh, you know, maybe uh, it could be researchers or families um, around a system thinking about what is our role uh, in fostering and spreading equity leadership um, becomes really crucial in trying to understand the system that we're in and about and how the uh, equity leadership is, where is it coming from and where is it going to and how do we, how do we kind of cultivate or grow or nurture that? One of the things I want to loop back in as we were talking about that is I think this goes back to that knowledge question to what Ann asked before about the multiple points of origin is I think one of the things that as equity practitioners and equity leaders and, and whatever work you find yourself in, we find ourselves in, we have to start with the assumption, which is a, a type of a knowledge, uh, that there is equity work happening across this district, right? That there is there there are people that are doing this work beyond, uh, deeper, uh, before maybe a particular office got set up or a, a person got a designation for a title or a position. And so I think part of the work is assuming and recognizing that equity work is happening all over the district and in the community. And then the second part after the, the, the recognition piece is now how do you start to connect it? Because the, con the connectivity piece to me is where we get what you were mentioning earlier, Anne, about the coalitions, right? You start connecting. And this mm -hmm. is where I think like the illustrations and the mapping, um, thinking um, spatially about our work can be super important as we think about work in equity in, in districts. And I think the school boards then, too, I mean, you know, is recognizing that there are places where it's happening, places where it's not. But part of the work is trying to now instead of orchestrate a distraction, you're orchestrating like this coalition to do this work, but you start from the assumption that it is actually happening throughout this district and in, um, and in the community. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I think that I think the other piece is really a, uh, starting with the notion that there is expertise there. I appreciate you nuancing that because I think uh, we get into all or nothing space <laughs> and it's like, sort of like we aren't going to figure this out until we have the expertise of the folks who are living it every day. The young people who are living it every day, their families, the folks who can um, bring in other kinds of knowledge and understandings and ancestral um, knowledges to help us think about how to transform, but also the place, the, the, the educators who are in it every day, who are trying to, trying to make it in this system. Um, and, you know, I think the idea of really trying to um, center learning in that is to me really crucial. And I don't mean learning, um, you know, I think people always say that, you know, they're like, oh, it, you know, leadership should be about instructional leadership, or this is, a, you know, center learning. And they, they're thinking about uh, kids, you know, at desks, 
<laughs> with books, that kind of thing. And what I what I mean when I say uh, learning, and that's not to say that that's excluded from that, but that 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 actually like our school board members um, have to figure out we we need to create routines. I mean, we talk a lot about organizational routines as this really crucial way of setting some conditions. Um, what does it look like for say a school board? to designate um, time and space and have a kind of organizational routine where they can be learning, learning mm-hmm. from educators in the system, learning from young people themselves, mm-hmm. learning um, from families and communities, and then co-constructing ways forward. And I, I have seen districts um, have regular, that becomes a kind of routine, is these kind of cl- more closed sessions where they're doing um like board learning study sessions um, to really dig deep into something. And so I think that can be kind of one uh, one place to begin that. And then also to begin to think about where are the places where this equity work is happening? Who are the folks who are doing that across the district? And to your point, Terrence, I think like the spatial move is so crucial, um, partly um, because also like if you think about some of these large districts, the, the context are dramatically different. And, you know, in this, the current study we're doing, we're talking about, like, how does racial historical context shape how equity work plays out, even within a single district? And you think about different parts of a, of a city, different schools, and then sometimes even within a school, you've got different kinds of dynamics unfolding. And we're, we've gotten to this place where we're like, oh, equity work, you know, and like, like equity has come to mean everything nowadays. But um, really trying to think about what does it mean to get really specific about a particular context and the the people in that context and the, the dynamics of power that are playing out in that context um, and then and then creating intentional routines and, and and time and space for us to be learning with from and co-constructing together um, ways forward and it, it just it's never we're never going to get a one size fits all Mm-hmm. kind of off the shelf equity solution. And I think that was part of the move, you know, that you were narrating earlier when districts were like, wow, we've just, we put in hundreds of thousands of dollars into these, um, you know, sort of one size fits all kind of professional development packages. And they're not making the kinds of change that we need. So I think one piece of it is the, you know, the, the, you know, the talk as change, and not needing, not getting to the to the action, but then the other piece of it is the kind of work that needs to happen is going to be uh, contextually yeah. shaped in very particular kinds of ways. Well, you know, I think you know, getting back to this question of learning, this is where I see the most powerful change happening or equity work happening. Which is no surprise that this is where the right actually attacks. Is like what people what people are learning and how they're learning inside of school organizations all the way down to the classroom. This is why ethnic studies is the thing that gets attacked. This is why books are the things that get attacked because by focusing on the learning, what people are learning and how they're learning it is really at the core of the conditions that shape what's possible within the school community. Um, So you could think about that across all the way down from kindergarten Right. All the way to like you're talking about, like board learning, uh, that core of like what people are learning, and how they're learning it is central. And it's why it's, it's very interesting, because a lot of progressive focus on a lot of other things. And you'll see conservative movements constantly attacking what people are learning and how they're learning. Right. Book bans, 
you know, uh, even if we think about, you know, more uh, conceptual learning and constructivist learning approaches, those are the things that get attacked often. And I don't think that that's um, a coincidence at all. I think that's the core of what we're looking for in educational organizations to change the conditions is what people are learning and how they're learning it, um, especially the young people. So I just wanted to just add that on as you were talking about learning. It just came to mind. For superintendents or school boards or whomever um, that are listening to this and they're like actually designing roles and positions and equity work, I guess what what what, what might we offer to them on how they may um, think about designing this work from the beginning to set it up to be most impactful and have most substantive type of uh, impact on the work based off what we know about how they have been constructed. Are there any things we might offer? I can get started. Um, I mean, some of this I'll let Dr. Ishumaru speak to, I mean, um, in more detail. I think it's involving and engaging um, in a serious way uh, students and families and community members in whatever the design process is Mm -hmm. uh, to give them a real stake um, in what the equity efforts actually look like and entail. Um, And I think the other part of it is to focus on engaging in the kinds of activities that will change the conditions of the learning environment. Um, be that through policy, be that through creating uh, ethnic studies courses, be that, be that through adopting instructional approaches, culturally relevant teaching practices, um, change the conditions, change the conditions. Conditions can hold longer than, you know, just practice changes alone. So um, I would that those are the things that I would suggest for superintendent. Uh, I'll, I'll just build on that. I mean, I think uh, that, you know, strategic plans end up shaping a whole lot of the activity um, in a district. And so really um, embedding in really intentional ways um, the kinds of uh, aims and goals and, and, and practices and conditions in that strategic plan, I think, ends up being really important. I've seen in a number of different districts. Um, and, you know, I think there's an evolving conversation. Uh, some of us have been involved in this uh, effort called Measures That Matter. I mean, I think we actually, um, we're going to have to think beyond the traditional measures. Uh, you know, we get, um, we can have really sometimes very expansive goals and aims in the strategic plan, and then it all gets boiled down to a single test score. And we're, we, we've done that before. We know what that produces. Um, and it doesn't produce the change that we want to see. And many times it actually doubles down on the problem. So we actually have to think um, more broadly um, and and not boil it all down to a single test score. Um, we it's I, I do think data is important. We need to think about that more expansively, though. We can think about um, measures of how young people experience their learning, um, their sense of um, belonging and efficacy, agency, their identities, um, and the relationships that they have with educators. Um, so we can be thinking at various levels about the different kinds of uh, measures and that young people themselves are have incredible expertise they can contribute um, to helping us understand um, how is our system operating now? How are they experiencing their learning? And um, how could that change? And and actually helping to collect data about what that looks like. So there's a couple of projects that are that are happening in a number of different places out there um, that I think offer us um, some real 
um, it was a very exciting ways forward to think more expansively about not only the, the measures that we're using, but also how we get them and how we use them. You know, the only thing I would just uh, continue to build on this is that um, you just mentioned it there a second ago around um, just being clear on, I think we this has come up in our research around the importance of having a theory of change. And so within that theory of change, being clear about what what part, what role is this office, officers, team, whatever is playing in this larger theory of change. And so being clear around that theory of change, which is malleable, which is dynamic, what can shift, what can which can change. But I think it's um, having some important conversations and being very intentional in the way you design um, this work um, with a broader theory of change attached to it. You know, people who are in these roles right now, um, they, uh, you know, all types of attacks are happening to undermine this work. And we, we do want to just lift up and just um, show mad love to, to folks who are in these roles, people who were in them, people who had to exit, people who are thinking about getting them. We, we are deeply indebted to the work that you're doing um, in schools and in districts with youth and with families, with communities. Um, so thank you for the, for the work that you have been doing and the work that you're doing. And, um, I guess, yeah, what, what, my, my final question is like, what might we offer the folks who are in these roles, who are feeling the constraints of some conditions that are, uh, counter to the work they're trying to do that are actively seeking to undermine them. Um, some people, I mean, like there, there are people I know who have been in equity roles or at least know of who um, the work was so substantial on their physiology and their physical body um, that mm-hmm. folks have actually died. So their, their lives, they've lost their lives in, in doing this work. And so um, it can be heavy and all types of yeah. um, weight. But I guess what might we offer to folks who are in these roles doing this work as they navigate, but also reimagine, but, you know, as they're in it? Yeah, I was... Uh... I was thinking about this question a lot because I was, um, yeah, I was in Houston a couple of weeks ago uh, when some of the decisions were starting to come down around DEI work and around, um, you know, the state takeover. And, um, I, you know, I was talking to some of the educators and community leaders on the ground there. And I, I came away actually really inspired because I think one of the things that they talked about was situating their leadership and their work in, in a kind of generational arc um, and recognizing that the leadership that we're taking now um, is, is stepping in. We're, you know, we're, we're building from the, the generational work that has come before us um, and the struggles and oppression that have um, come before us and also the, you know, the freedom work and the dreaming um, and that we're stepping into that um, both in terms of time, but also in terms of this broader, we think about, you know, I think one of the things is that we get stuck sometimes when the folks who are um, working in these systems, um, thinking in the, the four walls of a school or a district as the system and just sort of opening ourselves to realizing that there's a broader ecosystem out there and that um, the leadership that you all are taking that um, is so crucial, um, and, but also can be so draining, is uh, part of this broader ecosystem um, over time um, and, and in, in spaces, in broad places. So um, really trying to um, situate your work in the longer arc um, and give yourself some grace 
<laughs> in that and then connect um, outside the four walls um, because that's those the communities and the young people um, they're the ones um, that are um, that we're, we we want to work with um, alongside with move in solidarity with um, and it's these broader movements um, that um, that I guess give me give me hope and the and the youth themselves and the kind of um, movement building that they're doing. Um, when we see really major changes um, in schools uh, over the the arc of that history, it's it's often young people at the foreground leading that work. Yeah, um, I think Dr. Ishumara touched on a lot of what I would say. I guess um, you know I think it's important for equity directors of people in similar roles to uh, know, know the community, know the people who you're working with and know who got your back. Ask for help. Um, ask for people, you know, specific, ask the people, hey, I need you to show up for this, so on and so forth. So I think asking and being specific and tapping into the broader kind of like a community and village, uh, both that professional village, but also people who you might not think of as people who would step up for you in different ways. So being willing to, you know, ask for support and help um, in this work, I think is important because it helps people know that they're not in it alone, in it alone and that they are part of a broader set of commitments of people who share oftentimes their commitments that I see a lot of people who feel isolated and it seems lonely because they haven't tapped into um, and are actively continually tapping into the kind of people who, are valuable resources that, you know, in a moment of things might not seem apparent. Um, the other things that I would say are to, um, you know, ask for what you need. Closed mouths don't get fed. If you need more money, ask for more money. Tell your people, yeah, we need more money. We need more resources. I need more staff. Um, closed mouths don't get fed. And then the final things is that it's just know that it's a struggle, but know why you're doing it and that it is worthwhile. Um, Yep. Those are the things that I would say are kind of the parting words that I would have based on the research that I've been doing in the area that we've been doing. Uh, the, the, the things I would add to to that, uh, just to build on it. Um, one, I've been trying to read a little more about uh, fractal change. So understanding how what may seem small of a change can actually have um, an organizational impact, um, which reminds me of this quote, uh, Dr. Rihanna Anderson, who was on the podcast some earlier episodes. She was saying how a lot of time people want four minute solutions to 400 year problems. And I think the inverse of that is that even the stuff that you do in four minutes from a practical fractal lens can actually have um, resonance for 400 years. Um, and so um, continue to do the deep substantive work because like you just mentioned, and it's, it's intergenerational. It is, um, there's a longer arc of the work. I'm also reminded of, because I'm about to do this uh, episode on Tupac, <laughs> is, um, mm-hmm. and keep your head up, there's this one particular line that I, it just really just like resonated for me in all the years I've heard this song. But he says, we ain't meant to survive because it's a setup. And even though you're fed up, you got to keep your head up. And so that line is so powerful to me because there is a realization 
that we know we're in something that's set up and we can get so fed up. But there is a radical hope to keep our head up to continue to do this work. Um, I think that can be extremely profound. So those would be my parting, parting words. And as we part, there's a very special way. We just like to ask some very quick questions. They're going to take us all of 90 seconds to get through. As we close, the two quick questions I have, the very first question um, that I have for you is, could you share one of your most beautiful memories that you have? Um, one of your most beautiful memories? Uh, I mean, I just think like, I think, I don't know if it's a single memory. I just think that the uh, time that I have like with both of my my children when we're all together and everything is all just well. Um, yeah. So it's hard for me to think of a particular moment, but I think that my most wonderful memories are many instances of times when I'm with them. Yeah. I'm trying to come up. I guess my, I'll just like a, a really recent one is just being, yeah, just, just hanging out on the beach with my family, with kids and, you know, my, them sometimes goofing around with each other or sometimes creating things, um, you know, like little pieces of artwork on, on the beach. Um, I, I think the other thing, and I'll, I'll use this as an excuse to add one, one other idea uh, into the mix is being part of processes where folks are imagining something different than the way it is. Um, and I, that feeds me and the energies clearly feed other people um, in a way that's hard to put my finger on. Um, but it's just like, it's sort of like, this is, this is why I do what I do, um, to be able to be in space with folks, other brilliant folks who are imagining a, a different future, some otherwise futures. And that's, um, you know, my, and, and sometimes my kids are part of those conversations as well. Um, and so that also has this feeling of like that intergenerational thing becomes real. These are all beautiful. I'm, I was I had a couple things that I was thinking about, but one beautiful memory that I actually have is um, when the two of you all came to Austin and we just had a conversation just <laughs> for the record books. <laughs> we, did, uh, <laughs> we did. I have one picture from the, from the time. <laughs> so the history can show that it actually happened and it's not made up. We wrote all over the, these boards. The room was full of, of like uh, whiteboards and like we covered them. <laughs> it took one picture. That was it. <laughs> it was just a, it was a beautiful time. It was invigorating. It was exhilarating. It was life giving. It was challenging. It was stimulating. It was just like a beautiful moment. And it was just, yeah, it was one of the most it was just a beautiful experience and conversation and, and time we had. So we definitely got to do that again. My last question is, if you had a personal concert with three artists or a group, you can have them on, on slated to come do whatever you, whatever songs, whatever, but who would be the groups or artists that you would have at this personal concert? I thought about this one. Did you tip Dakota? <laughs> I mean, just now. Uh, uh, before I answer, I have to make a correction from the last time I was on the show. Okay. And the kind of end questions you asked me about who would play me or who I would play in a movie or my favorite actor or something like that. And I actually made a mistake that I have to own right now. I think at the time I said Tay Diggs. I meant Lorenz Tate. I just wanted to go on the record and correct that. Um, <laughs> gotcha. So, um, and, but I think my people would be 
West Montgomery. I mean, I'm assuming these people could be yes. alive. Could they be alive? Or people? Okay. Yeah. Uh, West Montgomery. Uh, Jimi Hendrix. And um, probably Nina Simone. Mm. Right up there with Bob Marley, though. Wow. Those would be my ones. Yeah. That, so I got stuck on, do they have to be alive or... <laughs> Can you include people who have passed? Um, I have very eclectic musical taste, but I um, was thinking it would be uh, like fabulous to hear what would happen if we brought together um, Yo-Yo Ma, who's a cellist, um, Beyonce, and um, Miles Davis, or Kenny Endo, who is a taiko master rooted in sort of American jazz as well as taiko. Japanese music. I don't know what they come up with, but um, you know my three: Tupac, Tupac, Tupac. No, let me stop. Uh, definitely, Tupac will be in the house for sure. Uh, Stevie Wonder. I just feel like Stevie just hits on hits on hits on hits. Uh, so Pac, Stevie Wonder, and probably um, I don't know. I feel like I need like a, a, a gospel artist or something like, I don't know, Fred Hammond or John P. Key, one of them um, will be in the mix. So, but thank, well, I just, again, want to say thank you all so much. Where can folks get, uh, learn more about the work that you're doing? Say a district or a school wants to work with you, uh, learn more about your books and the work you're doing. How can folks, you know, follow up and, and, and learn more about what you're doing? Uh, my, I'm most active on Twitter at Dakota Irby, uh, my one-stop shop to learn about everything I do from my local activism in my community to music, to my consulting, to what I do at University of Illinois at Chicago can be found at DakotaIrby.com. I, uh, you can find me on Twitter at, uh, at prof underscore Ishimaru, although I'm not there as frequently as I once was. Um, and I'm not quite as uh, together marketing wise <laughs> as Dakota is, but you can find the book at Teachers College Press. Um, and I have a couple of websites. There's the Family Leadership Design Collaborative, has a lot of um, a whole lot of work from the network of folks doing that work around co-design. Um, and um, through the University of Washington, you can find a bunch of resources through the Just Ed Leadership Institute, which um, uh, is kind of an umbrella for a bunch of different work that I do. Awesome. I will be sure to link all of those into the show notes so that folks can follow up. And uh, again, thank you all so very much for doing this. Super excited um, to have you all on and excited to have you on again, too, Dr. Ishimaru. Uh, we're going to do an episode here soon and having you back, uh, Dr. Irvi. Truly a pleasure. So thank you all so much. And like my boy, Marty Marseille, see you when I see you. Peace. We out this month. I hope you all got something out of that. Um, you know, I definitely can't say enough about the amazing people and the amazing work that both Ann and Dakota are doing and definitely want to circle back to let you know, hey, check out both of their books to check out Just Schools Building Equitable Collaborations with Families and Communities by Dr. Ann Ishimaru. Awesome, amazing book. I use it in the courses that I teach, as well as Dr. Irby's book on um, Stuck Improving. 
about racial justice and, and leadership. Another amazing book that I use in my work. So definitely go check out and get both of those books and not just gassing them up because they're my peeps, but they're really amazing books that will really, really, really uh, transform your practice. Also, we have uh, you're interested in, in some of the research we've been doing on equity officers and equity directors and school districts with, um, with, with equity offices. You can check out our website at leadforequity.com. That is lead, L-E-A-D-F-O-R equity.com e-q-u-i-t-y uh we got some policy briefs up there some of our research papers and we've been working on some professional collaborative learning for 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 school leaders and district leaders and folks who are um engaged in equity work particularly um equity directors and equity offices so if you have any questions uh just go ahead and shoot us an email on there we'll get back to you um, but we're preparing something um, pretty powerful that we've been working on um, and planning um, for folks in those roles and doing equity leadership at the district level. So excited that you all joined us for this particular podcast episode. And so thank you. Well, that is it, folks. Thank you so much for joining. I hope you enjoyed it. And I am so excited and really looking forward to our time together during future podcasts. What I need you to do is to please hit the subscribe button Share with a friend and please leave a review. Love reviews. And if you want to hear more from me, you can head on over to www.raciallyjustschools.com. That is www.raciallyjustschools.com. When you join our community, I have a free video for you on three tips that will make your racial justice work better. And again, if you love the show, hit subscribe, rate it, and leave a review on iTunes. And until next time, Peace.